0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four K E Y S that's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: It's about planning the long game. Creating a movement doesn't happen with just doing one talk, mm-hmm. <laughs> creating a movement. is a whole series of stories, ceremonies, symbols, and speeches and, and over and over and over. It's the long game. And, um, um, and for me, it's been the long game. I'm going to stay committed to this. Uh, you know, presenting well is like my cause. And it's just been so fun to see the transformation in space.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who have started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold
2: up.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, it is really cool to have you here. You know, uh, as I was saying to you before we actually hit record here, uh, the work that you and Gar Reynolds have done around presentations have deeply informed my own work uh, around speeches and presentations. Like I literally sit down with your books before every single talk I do to make sure that my slides don't suck. Uh, So uh, it is a (laughs) pleasure to have you here. And on that note, can you tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your background, and how that has led you to all the work that you're doing uh, today?
1: You know, I, I, I get this question sometimes. I think people think, think that I, you know, was born knowing I wanted to be a, a presentation specialist, you know, and, and I, I actually feel like in some ways presentations found me. I, um, I I actually, one of my dirty secrets is I was kind of raised in this economically and emotionally starved environment and I dropped out of college because it was just too hard. I got a C minus in speech communications in college. (laughs) I got a, I got a D in English Um, in speech communications. I actually got an F in being able to connect effectively with the audience. And if you look at my body of work, that failure, you know, almost like proving to that teacher that I do know how to connect to the audience is what sparked my body of work, and you know, you, as a as a someone, especially in the Silicon Valley, being a white female with an a Hispanic surname in the Silicon Valley with no degree, you know, I'm like the antithesis. I've become the antithesis of what my destiny maybe would have dictated. Um, I become, and um, you know, we just started this little tiny firm and. My husband actually started it. He just wanted to kind of work at home with the kids underfoot. And um, that was 1988. And believe it or not, exactly 25 years after he moved furniture, he, he spent a whole summer moving furniture from a company that was failing here in the valley and he moved furniture all summer and bought a little tiny Mac Plus in 1988 and we moved into that very same building he moved furniture from 25 years ago, it's a 35,000 square foot beautiful, sparkly, pretty building and it's just a dream he's like, Nancy, if I had an open vision 25 years ago when I was schlepping furniture that we would be in this building it would have freaked me out, like I would have run, you know, it, it's just Uh, overwhelming sometimes. And yet here we are. And my husband and I have always had this belief system that if you wake up every day and do what brings you peace and do what brings you passion, you'll end up at the right place, you know? And I feel like that's kind of what we did every day, not realizing that something like this, this big company would be, you know, (laughs) our destiny. Um, It's all worked out.
0: Mm. So that raises a a number of questions, as you might imagine. Uh, When you look back at your life, even prior to dropping out of college, like parents, mentors, influences, Mm -hmm. are there events or experiences that you think ultimately uh, planted seeds for how you ended up having presentations find you?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, my husband and I, we were we were just on vacation. I had my first what I would call real vacation a couple of weeks ago. And I was we were talking about how did you play as children? Like, how did you play? You know, and he was typical. Oh, we did sports and we speared rats on the fence and, you know, just like play, like boy play. And I said, wow, that's funny. I, I sat at a little desk and traced things out of coloring books and filed them. I played Monopoly. I played Risk. Like, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't do kind of those typical things. My version of play looked a lot like entrepreneurship. And, um, as I grew up, um, I, I, I think one of the most formidable influences in my life was my mother, um, in that she wasn't readily present. And my mom was a bit of a cocktail of excitement because she's actually a narcissist and she has border personality disorder and is bipolar. And so a lot of my childhood, I, I just wanted to be seen by her. I wanted to be noticed. I wanted her to see that I existed or that could, you know, was she proud of me was a very big thing I wanted to hear from my mom. And that became a lot of a driving force inside of me. Like, well, oh, maybe if I do this great thing, she'll notice me, you know, maybe, Oh, what if, what if I tell her about this thing? Maybe she'll say good job or, you know? And so that was almost it's like the fuel for a long time that fueled me. Now I'm over it, right? But for a long time early in my drive, my season of being driven, it was that. But oddly, um, it wasn't until um, – when I joined my husband in 1990 here, we won a division of Apple. Um, and Apple was the first company that hooked up um, projectors at scale you, you, to the computer. you got to realize that before then – my husband and I made actual 35 millimeter slides. We actually physically printed them in our apartment. And, um, what happened was Apple in 92, they had a huge layoff and all of those people that were used to us doing their slides for them, you know, scattered all over the Bay area and took us with them. and, and the phone just kept ringing and ringing for presentations. We tried really hard to not be a presentation company. We did web and print and multimedia, and we tried to hide presentations. <laughs> and, um, and then the dot-com crash happened, and everyone kept calling for their presentations. All the web, multimedia, print work went away. People kept calling for presentations. And I, at the same time, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, came out. And he said, uh, if there's one thing you can do that you can be best in the world at, be passionate about, be profitable about, do that just that one thing be profitable and that's what we did so here it is the economy's tanking it's crashing we decide to shutter three out of four of our services and focus on just one super counterintuitive move but it was the best thing i ever did and i just i just think that there's moments in time that are tests you know where you test your heart it tests your grit and um and I think I've had all of those, you know, and, um, we just chose to focus on it cause it was what the phone rang. And then by focusing on it, we became experts. So, um, that's like how it happened as you tumble through time here. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, one of the things that's really interesting is that you mentioned that you did terrible in speech and communication of all things. And now you've built this career and become sort of the go-to person for this very thing. Uh, what i think is really interesting though is the kind of identity transition that needs to occur yeah. internally in yeah. order to have that i mean that's significant that's almost literally a 180 degree transition yeah. i'm wondering what enables that in a person and a human being
1: yeah i don't i don't know what it is cuz when you know my my poor kids whenever they're it comes up and i'm like oh that reminds me of a story from my childhood they'll always be like mom we just we're not in the mood to be sad right now <laughs> you know <laughs> and i thought how funny that that when people hear my story, they're like, why, how did you become what you are? And I I don't know why, but some people, when they go through hardship, they become victims. They feel like this is happening to me versus rising and saying, well, this is an interesting challenge, you know, and I don't know why I've always just been resilient and, and looked at things from, you know, abuse and uh, neglect and all those things to, Hey, I know I don't want that. So I'm going to go become this other thing, you know, and just kind of took it as a challenge. And, what um, the the great thing is, it's so fun that uh, two years ago, I guess it's been two years ago, yeah, the university um, that where I failed out of or I dropped out of, they gave me uh, Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And it's gone to people like Ross Perot and all these other people. And they give it to me. And I just thought, wow, that's like closure in my heart. Um, Cisco, my client, they paid for me to get an MBA from UCLA. So that hole that was in my heart or that hole that would tell me every day, you have this void, you're a poser, you're faking, you know, those kinds of lies we tell ourselves that are, you know, we try to knock ourselves down, you know, these lies we tell ourselves, all those kind of lies got closed in my heart because of these things, these moments that happened to me that said, no, you, you are the real deal. It doesn't matter that you didn't get a degree, you know, and then, and then you see Cisco swooped in with the UCLA, um, MBA program, and I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe all this just happened. So it's been, it's been, uh, it's not, I mean, uh, life isn't all rosy, but I think life is what you make it. And I've always tried to uh, um, take everything as a, as a fresh challenge and a new thing to learn and overcome. Do
0: you think everybody has that capability to take an experience that has happened to them uh, and instead of becoming a, a victim to it, uh, make a positive change from it? And Thank if you. so,
1: how? I do. I think it's just a choice and a mindset. You know, my husband was diagnosed with cancer and now we've tried to cure it three times, but we have, we're, we're so excited about life. We don't, you know, not that we don't care, but it's like how, you know, we could hole away in the fetal position and cry under our pillow or live life to its fullest, you know? And I, I, we, you know, we've had hard things happen and we've had glorious things happen and we just try to be fully present every day and, and not, and, and not take on a pitiful self-focused narcissistic mindset and, um, work hard at making sure we understand that in every obstacle is an opportunity.
0: You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me about your story is, that it seems like what we know you for started well after almost 25 years of working at what you do. Uh, And that's a long time, you know, to persist at something. And I'm just curious, you know, one, how you've developed that level of persistence, that level of grit uh, and how people do that in their own lives. Because I think that in the world that we live in, Uh, And I wrote this in my book, I said that our perception of longevity is incredibly warped because the world moves at breakneck speeds. And where that came from was a lecture I heard Sam Altman give during the Y Combinator Startup School series that they made available via podcast. He said, you know, uh, a long term view is your greatest competitive advantage, because so few people have one.
1: I love that. Yeah, it's funny, I, I, we were in business 20 years before my first book was written. And I think it's, I think it wasn't until we focused on presentations and I really got my sea legs and I started to look around and be like, nobody's, we are the, we might be the experts in the world at this, you know? And, um, my son wound up, he's super gifted and he wound up going away uh, to high school to the East coast because he's a musical prodigy and he became an empty nest. I became an empty nester three years sooner than I thought. Now while my kids were growing up, I got one REM cycle of sleep. I got. I slept from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Uh, for about a decade. And that's what I had to do to be a mom, to be present, and to be an entrepreneur with a very vastly quickly growing business. We grew 25% a year for 20 years. And that was hard. It was hard, but it was um, – Easy in the same sense because I loved what I did and I wanted to make the sacrifice to be there for my kids. So it was like it took a lot of discipline and keeping my hand to the plow. Um, And then I brought in a president in 2006. I'll never forget. It was like I brought him in, he started to run the place, and I thought, I need to go on a journey of my soul. I need to know now that I'm not having to be caught up in the day to day of this business what do I want to do and that's when I decided to write the book and just put put my body of work out there for the world to judge and see where it goes and and now I'm kind of hooked right i just finished this new one and which is a lot about um your the the Um, comment you just made on longevity um it's about planning the long game creating a movement doesn't happen with just just doing one talk (laughs) Mm -hmm. creating a movement it's a whole series of stories ceremonies symbols and speeches and and over and over and over it's the long game and um, um and for me it's been the long game I'm going to stay committed to this. Uh, you know, presenting well is like my cause and it's just been so fun to see the transformation in space.
0: Mm. So. so I have one more question about the earlier part of this. You know, you mentioned that uh, you have this sort of hole in your heart from wanting uh, parental approval and Like the reason I asked this question is because I think I still have it, you know. Especially coming from an Indian (laughs) family, and my sister is the chief anesthesiology resident at Yale, so she's done everything like a good Indian kid should do, and I'm
1: in your DNA, probably.
0: Yeah, and and I'm (laughs) like the polar opposite. Like I I jokingly was telling my business partner, I think that God made a sorting error at the hospital when I was born. (laughs) Uh, So I'm just curious how you know you go about resolving that in your life if you haven't yet.
1: Yeah, you know what it 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 was about when I was, I was at home for 16 years when my mom was there. She wound up leaving me when leaving us when I was 16. When I was celebrating my 16 year anniversary, I realized, wait a minute, I've been away from my mom as long as I was with her. How long? how long does it take you to get over this? Right. And I made a decision that I'm just going to be over it and realize, just accept, just be like, I will never hear the words I long to hear from my mom. And I just, I kind of moved on. And then it was, uh, 18 months ago, my girlfriend gave me a book and I can't ever remember the title, but the subtitle is healing for daughters of narcissistic mothers. (laughs) Yeah. There's a book and there's a 33, uh, question list. And if you, get anywhere from five to higher your, your mom's a narcissist. And my mom, all three of my sisters, it was like, I was 32. One sister was 31 and the other said 33, you know, so we're like, Oh, clearly we were raised by a narcissist. And one of the exercises they say you should do in the book is to visualize your mother as a child and pull your mother on your lap. It's this whole like, woo, 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 you know, kind of thing. And and by happenstance, what happened is at the same time my aunt had found in her basement a whole ton of 8 millimeter rolls of film. She had no idea what they were, but I'm like, hey, let me take them. I'll make copies for everybody. I popped the first one in, and it's a DVD of my mother as a little girl playing. And I just watched it and watched it. Just I was mesmerized by it. I watched about an hour of it. She was playing with other little kids, playing with her siblings. And it brought this feeling like, she does have a childlike wonder or used to when she was young. And it just, I just kind of let it wash over me and just let it go. I just let the whole thing go in a deeper way. Right. Um, and I think that that's what, um, has, you know, ultimately set me free was just letting go and, uh, not putting expectations on her when her brain isn't wired to fulfill those expectations. Once I realized it was a mental illness and not, that she didn't like me, my whole heart shifted. Um, and that was important. That was really important for me.
0: Hmm. So one of the things you said, uh, earlier was that as a part of building this business, uh, into what it's become today, you you held this belief system that you wake wake up every morning and do work with peace and passion. Mm
1: -hmm. And I'm wondering
0: how you've developed that belief system over time and how other people do that in their own lives and in their own work.
1: I think that um, my husband and I actually, when we were young, (laughs) we started out and actually wound up moving to the Bay Area because we wanted to pastor a church, believe it or not. We'd been in kind of an abusive church situation in a small town in Northern California where the board at one time, uh, my husband needed air conditioning. The sun would set on the west side of his office. It would get to 110 degrees in his office. And so someone proposed, let's get him some air conditioning. And one of the board members said, he's a Mexican, get him a sombrero. <laughs> and, and my husband and I were like, we need to get out of here. So we came down to the Bay Area thinking we would start a church where people actually loved each other and liked each other and did everything that the scripture says you should do. Just, why don't we act like all the words in red that Jesus said, let's just do <laughs> those, you know? And, uh, and so we, that was our original purpose of coming down here. Now, now we have our own little group that we shepherd you know here and they're called Duarte and Duartians and we decided to apply some of those principles from the scripture around love around um following your passion I think you're I think you are hardwired you're made with a with a destiny and I think that destiny emerges when you follow your passion and then the peace part is you know you should do things that bring peace and love and all those things and so I it's it's definitely grounded in our upbringing um, and in the words of Jesus. I I don't love what Christians have come to represent by any means. <laughs> I think Jesus's fans kind of screwed it up pretty bad. Um, <laughs> but that's where I'm rooted and tethered to um, is showing love, and that's how it manifests: love for what you do and love for others. Hmm.
0: You mentioned that you're hardwired uh, for destiny of some sort, and mm-hmm. you know I think it's interesting that you have become masterful at this one thing. And you know I'm wondering, does that exist in everybody's life, and how do they connect the dots to see what that one thing
1: is that they're destined to do? Well, and I, that's where I, I I think it takes years to get there. That's yeah. why I like I do like to say, just wake up each day do what brings you peace and passion so like my son he's an interesting example of this guy who's just he was classically trained composer he writes these beautiful classical music decided that that for him is sacred and he didn't want to do that as his profession so he's taught himself how to be a mechanical engineer and now he's making heart valves (laughs) like but what he does is he stays up till midnight every night and he's A hobby. He's doing his hobby, which is, believe it or not, building scale steam engines. He orders in the prints from the 1800s and builds these intricate steam engines. Why does he love that? I don't know. Like, am I ever going to bug him for doing this thing he's passionate about? No, because that hobby led him to enter, even though he's a composer, he's entering into organization at an engineer level. Like, how impossible is that? If he hadn't followed this passion... It's shaping who he becomes and and what his craft is. You know what I mean? I don't think he would have said, I want to make heart valves, but he, he's doing what he's passionate about, which is this obscure little hobby and it op- it's opening up doors for him in a way that are, are unprecedented. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's what I mean. I, don't, I think sometimes we can try. I can see the future pretty clearly. I'm a bit of a seer in the sense that I get an intuitive sense that my organization needs to be at a different place in the future. 18 months out, we need to look like this. We need to be doing these activities. We need to offer these services. I can just tell, right, being the leader for so long, I can actually see a little bit of the future. But if I were to say in 20 years, I know for sure that this is my destiny. um, I think you have to take it one day at a time or that could become frustrating. And it's a little bit about, you know, what illuminates about, there was a whole body of work we did around that, this sense of if your organization is like an epic length tale that transcends leaders and, and everything, what is that thing? What is that purposeful thing that, that stays in place no matter no matter where you go or what you become. And um, so we want to release that as possibly the next um, book. So we're building out that kind of purpose that would lead you to your destiny kind of a piece. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, And that'll be coming.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with tap to pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Another piece of this that I find really fascinating, and it's really relevant to the way I've been thinking about things, uh, is you mentioned, you know, in the wake of a, the dot-com recession, you're like, that's it. We're going to cut all these services and we're going to uh-huh. do this one thing and we're going to do it exceptionally well. And there's another reason this is fresh on my mind. I don't know if you've read it, but uh, a journalist named Leander Caney wrote a book called Inside Steve's Brain. Uh, and it's about you know, Steve Jobs and his return to Apple. And there's a chapter titled How Saying No Saved Apple. And he talks about how basically he eliminated just about every yeah, single true. thing.
1: He made a four-quadrant graphic and decided we'll only do these four products. Exactly.
0: And I mean, it sounds like you've done something similar. Yep. I, you know, and I found myself doing exactly that, saying, okay, we have three products, our newsletter, our podcast, and the book that's coming out. Everything else is a distraction. And that's it for the entire year. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, I'm amazed by how difficult people find it to do that. And I'm wondering, as somebody who has done that um, and just let go of all those other things, uh, you know, how you do that. Um, and, and you bring that kind of focus, uh, and and why that kind of focus creates the momentum that it does in your work.
1: Oh, you know, I um, I I try to simplify. My people from the outside are like, "Oh my god, you're so busy!" Like they love to tell me that. Oh my god, you're so busy. <laughs> I'm like. What you know, because they'll be like, I had to wait four, year, four, four months to get on your calendar. <laughs> and i will be like, but I don't tell them. It's like, well, that's because I take Saturdays and Sundays off three nights a week. I have no plans. My calendar is booked so I can write. So I only have a handful, maybe five hours a week I can give to other people and their needs or whatever, you know. And I think it's because I do protect it So I can produce. I know before we started this um, recording, we were talking about how I think both of us like to produce something every day. We like to put some words on the page or do something. And I protect that time. So I do cut a lot out. I would say I have a handful of very close friends. I don't have hundreds of very close friends. you know. Mm -hmm. I have really close relationships with my children and a handful of close friends. And then the rest of the time, I'm pouring into my body of work. And I like that. I like I like spending my time that way hmm. and as CEOing right now. I'm 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 the president of my firm. I had to step in and do that for a little bit, um, which has been kind of exhilarating.
0: Well, I, I think that makes a, a perfect setup to start specifically talking uh, about your body of work. Uh, you know where I want to start. Uh, Before we get into the communication piece and the, the tools and ideas in the book is about what has informed your perspective on design and the way you tell these stories so that they are so compelling and engaging.
1: You know, I, uh, people put, I somehow Wikipedia, someone keeps putting in there that I'm a presentation designer. Uh-huh. I, I think I finally figured out, I think it's cause my Ted talk says that my title is a presentation designer. <laughs> I am. And so my poor marketing guy has to go in there and keep taking it out. Someone keeps putting And it also says I have a degree in math, which I don't know where these people get this information about me. <laughs> that's more insightful than my own, um, my own, um, bio, but I, I'm not a designer what I am is, I think I'm a systems thinker. I'm one who needs to be able to visually connect some dots. So if you click even from one slide to the next and you talk about the same thing over two slides, but you visually expressed them different, it's like, what an idiot! Don't do that, you know? And I just think I naturally could see the visuals that fit into systems and highly valued making the complex simple because when you're a systems thinker you can see the whole system but how do you, how do you convey it in a way that makes it clear and simple and distilled so I would say that's really what my gifting is, and then I guess maybe I was smart enough to attach myself to people who know how to visually express it in a way that's breathtaking. Mm-hmm. And so I do think everyone can develop the skill of thinking and distilling and and cutting and trimming, um, but not everybody can actually visually express it to a level of beauty and, and distinction that I, I think my team can. Mm-hmm.
0: So I have one question about the actual work you do, and more importantly, about the people that you've worked with. Uh, You know, I think the one that everybody knows you for, at least I do, uh, is the inconvenient truth piece. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you've learned about uh, human behavior, psychology, motivation, and performance from working up close and personal with somebody like an Al Gore.
1: What, what was it like to work with him? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what are the lessons in success and yeah. like, you know, you know what, what I, enables I, that? It's so fun. I, we worked with him for, like, I think, my dog. I have my little doggie here on my lap. She wasn't feeling good today. So <laughs> oh, she just sneezed. <laughs> Sorry about that. But, um, Mr. Gore was amazing to work with. So we worked with him, I think it was four years before The Inconvenient Truth became a movie. In fact, when they contacted me and were like, we're making a movie, I'm like, who's going to see a movie about a slideshow, right? How, how much did I not believe in my own body of work or whatever? But um, the lessons learned um, for me was I we had never really worked with anyone of his stature and his power, right? Right. Um, who we would propose something and then he would just sit and reflect for 10, 20 seconds. And and then he'd be like, if you guys think that's the best way, yeah, let's do it that way. Right. Whereas we could work with 22 year old CEOs today who think they rule the world of visual display of information. Like, you know, it was, it was just really telling how um, thoughtful and how much he deferred, how much he deferred um, to us for our professional, um, Insights, and um, and that was a real honor. And and I also think I short sold. You know, my whole my whole um, insight about well, who wants to see a movie about a slideshow that was so short sighted because here I'd spent so many years building up the perception of what a slide, great slideshow could do, and I didn't even believe myself that um, that this would work. And and just the fact that he traveled around the world creating a groundswell, like a lot of people don't realize that he did travel for like four years, like I was saying, he would go into these different geographies and try to find the people of greatest influence and gather them together, whether it was homes or small venues or whatever, and just just repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly saying the message, the message, the message. And so by the time the actual movie came out, there was such a groundswell of support that it just kind of busted open. And uh, watching that was, uh, was really unbelievable, mm. really unbelievable.
0: Well, I think that makes a, a perfect setup to uh, get into what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about, which is the new book, and specifically the Torchbearers Toolkit, because I looked at all of these tools, and I decided I was going to ask you an incredibly selfish question. Uh, <laughs> so let's say that I wanted to take the concepts uh, in the Torchbearers Toolkit and apply them to the concepts that I am uh, discussing in my new book that I'm coming at. If I were to translate that into a presentation, do you think we could walk through an example of what that would look like?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do meaning yeah. So you you'll tee up what
0: so I'll tee up the situation it, is or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
0: let let's say the concept is is unmistakable. Why only is better than best? That's sort of the thesis, and I want to apply the cons, the, the tools from the Torture Bearer's toolkit to that idea, so that way we have mm-hmm. a practical example to work with.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, dep- So what this book is about is about taking uh, uh innovation and um. like which would be maybe your book Mm -hmm. and turning it into a movement like how do you build the momentum and how do you actually see it executed and so let's say you were trying to create a, a um a movement around something that's unmistakable. So, it, the phases. Um, since people may or may not have seen the book, um, the phases we call it a venturescape. So that puts you as the leader of a venturescape. We position the leader as a torchbearer, and that's what you would be. You're the torchbearer, and you have your travelers. That need to make this journey with you. So those are the people you need to lead in mass to believe that your book is true, right? Mm-hmm. Or whatever is the premise or the or the thing that you're trying to move them through. So the your travelers are going to go through a five step process. They need to understand the dream, then they're going to, which is like your moment of inspiration, and then they're going to make a leap. They're going to make a moment of decision. Then they have to fight. They have to be brave. They have to maybe defend your work. They have to maybe, um, you know, be um, get other people not to want to join your movement. And then they have to um, be able to navigate that. That's like a f- moment where there's this fog of war. And then they have to climb, which is the moment of endurance. And then they arrive, which is when you create a moment of reflection. So there's these moments along the movement where people need to hear speeches, stories, uh, be part of ceremonies and that create these symbols of meaning along the way. Well, this is the long game, you know. This isn't like by Tuesday. Yeah, but sometimes in one day you can go through all five phases, but most of the time this is that whole longevity play. A lot of times an initiative is a year long, two years long, uh, eighteen months long, whatever however long it is, um, and you walk your um, travelers. Could be an audience, could be your employees, could be your customers whoever that your readership in your case, they're going to go through all of these phases because let's say you're trying to change their mindset. They're like, I got the dream, your book, maybe the dream, right? Mm -hmm. They're like "I'm pretty committed to it. Then they start to apply it. So that's the dream leap. They start to apply it. It's a fight. They might try it for two days and give up. So your job would be to arm them with things that make them brave and keep them brave as they try to apply your principles. And they start to feel like I just want to give up. I think, actually making this come true is too hard then it's your job as a communicator to tell enough stories give a speech write a blog post those things that keep them in the fight and then they have to endure as they try to put it into practice and that would also be your job as the communicator Mm -hmm. to make sure that they can endure so ultimately they arrive transformed it's a it's a story structure it's this likable person as they try to jump into change it's hard and then ultimately when they commit to it and see it through they change Um, And so that's basically um, the structure and that's how it would apply. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, So I want to ask you specifically uh, for examples uh, from the book and just so, you know, we have a few more tactical things to work with of speeches, stories, symbols and ceremonies that Mm -hmm. have actually fueled movements.
2: Yeah,
1: there's a um, bunch. So there's, a, um, there's case studies in the book um, that are really appealing. So we wrote a case study for each phase. There's a dream case study, a leap case study. And we studied uh, different companies, Interface Carpets, Starbucks. We took Dr. King's uh, civil rights movement, but the uh, Chicago campaign specifically, that movement because there's little movements within a bigger movement uh, Steve Jobs as he migrated all of his developers from Mac OS 9 to 10 and um, and charity water and so in each case study there's tons of speeches stories ceremonies and symbols um, that they used as they're trying to transform people in mass Um I don't know if one of those seems particularly interesting to you let's, or
0: not. Let's do the charity water one because I think people are probably familiar with that. Um, the, yeah. I, the part that personally is very intriguing for me, like the speeches and the stories part I get because I've been exposed to so many of them. I mean, what we do is effectively tell stories and have people give speeches uh, <clears throat> here um. at Unmistakable Creative. I think the thing that's really interesting to me is the ceremonies and symbols uh, because it seems like that's a, a big mm-hmm. part of how you know people like Chris Gillibell create what they do uh, in the environments yeah, uh-huh. that they set up. Um, you know, People like Tony Robbins, So I'd love to hear about how that applies in creating a movement.
1: Yeah. um, So ceremonies are very important interesting um, and I think that's one of the newer insights in the book though though we did come up with story plots that nobody's ever really discovered before but ceremonies are based in the rites of passage if you look back as far as you can to civilizations, some of the earliest artifacts you can find were used in a form of a ritual it was a ritualistic use of these little tools or artifacts symbols you can call them if you want and it, I was like wow why is it that corporations don't intentionally do ceremony and and the ceremony you would do at each stage is very very different but it's it's part of the human condition because we're kind of wired for these mostly it's it's wired into the uh, rites of passage almost every religion and culture has some sort of rites of passage. It's a about mitzvah in the hispanic cultures it's a quinceanera a wedding is a rite of passage what happens is you show up You're single, you go through a 10-minute ceremony, you're married. It's like, I'm not that anymore, and now I'm this, just because you went through a ceremony. Well, part of transformation at scale and creating a movement is letting go of the past and embracing the future. And And a ceremony does that. It says, we're no longer this, and now we're that. And it helps everyone acknowledge that. Now, if you do it in a in a corporate setting, you could really screw this up. Like, it's pretty easy <laughs> to screw it up. It has to actually come from the hearts of the people sometimes. Like, uh, you know, some companies, maybe it was a merger and acquisition and they just take the name of the company off the building and uh, throw it in a dumpster and put the new company name up there. Well, that's the bad that you could actually ceremonially with grace, with honor, do a ceremony around pulling the old name off and putting the new one off, you know? So those become, uh, a ceremony. It's not a story. It's a, it's a ceremony. And I think one of the funnest, funnest, most interesting ones in the book was when um, Steve Jobs was trying to get all the developers to move from Mac OS nine to 10. That Mac OS 10 is what next. That's why they bought his company was to get a new operating system. And yet the developers were pretty entrenched and skeptical because they'd been on a 10 year journey with Apple without a strategy. And so they just didn't believe that Apple could actually stick to a strategy. Well, he'd been working with them for three years and there were still some developers incredibly skeptical. And he already had a new dream of the future where Mac OS 10 was this hub. There's a speech he gave where he talked about Mac OS 10 being a hub. It's called the digital hub strategy and he had this vision. Everything's hooked up to MacOS 10, doggone it. You need to move on to 10. So he wanted to, that speech is fascinating because about the next decade of Apple products was foreshadowed in that speech. It's pretty amazing. So it's a pretty big dream he had, but the developers are still bitching about nine and not <laughs> wanting to move to 10, right? And so he opened up WWDC 2002 with a, with a funeral, a mock funeral. Uh, smoke came out from under the stage, a coffin raised up, stained glass went up on the um, slides, and uh, he, Steve Jobs walks out with an oversized box of, Mac, box of Mac OS 9. He walks over to the coffin, puts it in it, closes the lid, puts a rose on top of it, and eulogizes Mac OS 9. That's not a speech. It's not a story. It was a ceremony. He did, a, and It was a funny eulogy, which was good, because people that were there that I've talked to were like, Initially, it was kind of creepy, but then it was like, you know what, we're over it. It's done. And it sent a very clear message to the developers in the room that, no going back, it's dead. He never addressed macOS 9 again, ever. It was done. It was done in his mind and his heart. And the developers that did not move on missed out, missed out. And he wanted to send a really clear symbol. A really clear message, excuse me, about that. Um, And so it's just um, in the charity water, because you wanted an example of that. um, Scott Harrison's charity water is his whole (laughs) nonprofit is just just steeped in storytelling. He's such a good storyteller. And so, um, what happened was that he, one of the ceremonies he did, it's a, it's a, it's a ceremony of empathy. What he did is when you are in a poor country, a lot of times the women have to walk eight hours a day and carry a jerry can of 35 pound jerry can that's usually used for diesel fuel to carry a, a 35 pound jerry can up to eight hours a day, just to get water for their family. And what, scott did is he created this ceremony at these fundraisers he calls it a a walk he calls it a water walk um, a gala walk or i don't i don't know the exact name of it but he sets up a catwalk basically like a runway and he has these jerry cans full of water 35 pounds each sometimes and asks you to pick it up and just walk like 20 feet not eight hours just walk 20 feet with these jerry cans full of water and what it does is it makes you go oh my god oh my God, I see things from their perspective. I can't do this. Like I couldn't even pick two up. I had to use two hands to carry one. And then I went and hired a trainer (laughs) to help me. But that is a ceremony. That's an immersive ceremony. So in the toolkit, in the book, the dream phase, it says the ceremony you need to do there is an immersive ceremony, which is Foreshadows foreshadows baptism, say, which is a ceremony you dip underwater and you come out changed. Well, that's what, that's what um, Scott's created. He created an immerse deeply ceremony, which is I pick up these cans, I try to lift them, and I'll never be the same again. I have been immersed in the lives of these women, you know, and that's how you catch. That's one way he set up a ceremony so you could catch his dream of clean drinking water for everybody in the world.
0: Wow. Um, so I have two last questions for you. Sure. Uh, this capacity to incorporate ceremonies, stories, and speeches to ignite change and create movements uh, in, in such a way that it, that is so compelling and effective to the people that you're trying to move, do you think that that can be learned and developed? And do you think there are people that are just inherently good at it naturally without even knowing what they're doing? And if you can develop it? Um, you know, what have you seen as patterns and people who have evolved in that?
1: I, I think there's some people that are naturals at it, and I feel like the case studies in in the book were were definitely people who are natural at it. My favorite kinds of response we're getting to the book is, oh my gosh, Nancy, I feel like Gales just fell off my eyes because for the first time ever in my life, I can see things from the perspective of my employees or I can see things from the perspective of my clients. So the model, well, the Venturescape model in the book itself is actually a graphic of empathy. It's like, holy cow, I can see now that they're in a struggle. I never really realized that asking my employees to change is a struggle and that it's a fight for them and that they're picking up my battle cry, right? And they, and that's my favorite thing. And so that's why, like, I had a really difficult talk I needed to do with my own team. And this sounds, maybe it sounds narcissistic. Maybe I'm more like my mom than I thought, but I whipped open the toolkit and I processed it. I processed it, and I I was like, because we were in the fight phase, and I felt like during the fight phase I had a, a casualty, for lack of a better word, and I pulled it out, and I was like, what do my people need to hear from me as a leader? And I did this little inventory. I was on an airplane, and I outlined a beautiful talk. And oddly, if I didn't have this book, I would have taken that a different direction. So while we were writing the book, it was interesting. My own organization was going through a pretty big change, and one driven by me, it was to help get us global ready and all this stuff, and. As we were writing it, I would say, oh, my goodness. Like there were some poignant moments where I would get misty-eyed with my co-author. We would both just sit there and be like, this is too real. It's too poignant because uh, we were like, this totally applies to us right now, and we could see it so clearly. And so um, the whole thing, this whole experience of writing this book was surreal and um, and fun. So I guess my answer, my short answer should have been, yes, I think it can be taught And yes, I do think some people are just naturally better at it than others. But I think everyone that leads should care enough about their team to consider their perspective and communicate from there.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, this has been incredible, uh, as I expected it would be. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: You know, I think it's when they're comfortable being different. I think that I'm different, right? And I just kind of let it hang out there. <laughs> and I think you have to be able to be comfortable being free from caring that you're judged. You know, it's like it's like I put it out there and people may be like, oh, my God, I can't believe she talked about her mother, you know? And it's like, you know what? It's shaped me. It's what made me unmistakable. And, and. Um, that's what I think it would be. I think just don't don't care that people may judge and uh, and be comfortable being different.
0: Mm. Well, uh, this has been really phenomenal, and Aww. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your insights and your your story with our listeners. I will probably be playing this interview a hundred times every time <laughs> I prepare, every time I prepare for a presentation, <laughs> much like I do with yours and Gar's books. I'll probably listen to this interview.
1: Oh, you've been so good. This was a blast.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, I will link up everything that Nancy had mentioned in the show notes, and we will wrap the show with that.
5: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.